Good morning, everybody. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. I hope you're having a wonderful morning so far. We're about to enter into worship, so you're invited to stand if you're able. you 
Father, blessed be your name in all the earth and that of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this prayer. When we observe all the works of your hands through the majesty of your creation, we marvel and rejoice that you are mindful of our needs and happiness. It is almost unbelievable to us that you, the all-knowing, all-wise, all-sovereign Jehovah, should choose to run this world in response to the prayers of your people. This is our prayer that we learn your story and that it may shape our story. Lord, there are many ways that make us feel unworthy of your continued love and support. As hard as we might try to be like Jesus, we often do or say things that we wish we had handled differently. It seems that daily, we are asking for your forgiveness for our sins over and over again. Thank you for not giving up on us. We also thank you for being willing to come down in the person of Jesus and share the same hardships we endure on a daily basis, which he did, but without sinning. You have set the example for us to follow, and we thank you for continuing to help guide and direct us to live in accord with your will. We pray for your blessing on this group and others like it wherever they are assembled. While the COVID pandemic has threatened the lives of so many, we nevertheless look upon it with encouragement because many are coming to realize that their future is so uncertain and are turning to Jesus for answers. More than ever, we need you, Lord Jesus. Come quickly because we are ready. We pray that you protect our brothers and sisters from evil and grant them the peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what their circumstances. All these things we ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Community Church. I just want to say welcome once again. I'm so glad you're all able to come and worship with us. On your way in, you should have been given a bulletin. Um, I just want to bring your attention to it right now. Um, you can fold it in half and take the top part off like this. It's very cool. Um, take the top, <laughs> take it home, give it to a friend, invite them to church. We just want to welcome everyone. And then on the bottom side, first um, on the front, we have our Connect card. Uh, we just welcome you to fill it out. Um, we want to get connected with you if you're new or visiting. And then on the back, um, here at La Jolla Community Church, we believe in the power of prayer. And um, I know that there's a prayer team here that goes over all of these prayers every week. So we invite you to fill that as, out as well um, if you have a prayer request or even just a praise. Um, and then you can take this bottom part and drop it in the back. There's a box with your tithe. So Please do that, and I would like to welcome Pastor Steve up to give us our message. Have a good Sunday. Anna, thank you so much. Anna is a student at UCSD. She's a, an intern on our staff. Her folks are missionaries in Italy. I want to be a missionary in Italy. Accept uh, that. Um, they're doing some really, really hard work, good work, uh, with women who have been trafficked. And so uh, Anna is one of those amazing, wonderful uh, young adults you see around here who is uh, wise beyond her years and a delight. So uh, here we are. We're in uh, the new year. Can you believe it? I'm not sure which one it is. I've lost track. It kind of uh, went all dark in about 2020, but I think it's 2022. 
And uh, we're jumping into a new year, and in this new year we want to read through the Bible. Uh, perhaps you already have a, a, a plan for reading through the Bible every year. If you don't, or if you've read it but have, have sort of put it aside, if you've never read it all the way through, we're encouraging everybody to read through the Bible this year. And though that might sound like a daunting task, it's not as daunting as you think. Uh, I know people who have watched easily 50 hours of any number of shows. Uh, the binge watching of TV has been epic and record uh, making uh, in the last two years, and it's not unusual for people to have watched 80 hours of shows. I won't name the shows that I know some people in my home have watched, um, but I've been sitting there with them, sitting there with them, so I can t- uh, actually uh, document the fact that we've watched, I've watched more, I'm not a TV watcher, and I've watched more TV in terms of interesting series. Because once you start watching it, you get caught up in it, right? And how, what a blessing it is not to have to wake week after week, but you can just go from episode to episode for hours. Reading the Bible will take you between uh, 50 to 80 hours. Think about that. I, I can start naming off the list of shows that you've watched easily 50 to 80 hours of in the last two years. Reading the Bible will take you 50 to 80 hours. If you break it down, that's not that, that much. You can read the entire Bible in four days. You can read the whole book of Genesis in two hours. Are you with me so far? This is not an insurmountable task. Uh, and you can have snacks, because you'd be in the privacy of your own home, probably, uh, or some taco bar, you're reading the Bible. So you can make it as comfortable as you want it to be. So we're moving through the Bible. We had a big opening, ta-da, here's the Bible. And now we're launching in book by book. And it sounds ridiculous to do Genesis in, in 25 minutes. Uh, of course, we can't. But what I can do is jumpstart your thinking about Genesis. And with this uh, handy-dandy journal uh, that Mary and uh, Janet Griffin put together and this bookmark, you got all the Bible books listed on one side. And on this side, and there's more, on this side, uh, you have all these phenomenal, high-tech, easily accessible uh, resources available to you. Things like Bible Project uh, or any, and any number of other ones that we've listed here. So there's zero excuse for you not to start reading and start writing about what you're reading and writing down questions, insights, thoughts. And at the end of this year, uh, you're going to have read through the Bible and jotted down some things that God was saying to you, and you're going to say, I want to do this again. It wasn't as hard as I thought. I think I'll do it again. And this will create a new pattern for you. I can tell you this. If you have kids, you'll never convince them to read the Bible unless they've seen you reading yours. If you have friends that are skeptical or overwhelmed by it, intimidated or just not interested, and you say, gosh, I was reading this thing lately, and it really really captured my imagination. What was it? You tell them in your own words what it is, and they go, that's fascinating. Uh, I know a guy who... um, he lives here in San Diego. Uh, he's a journalist, and he was talking to this famous Hollywood star and a very controversial, edgy kind of a guy, and they're talking about life, and this guy comes up with this little mini philosophy of life, and my friend says, well, that's interesting, and he says, you know, I, I think of it this way, and he just rolls out a Bible verse, and the guy with uh, hyphenated expletives included uh, response, all positive, by the way, said, that's amazing. Where did you get that? You're a genius. And, and this guy was so delighted to say, well, I got it from the Bible. 
And the guy said, no, really, I can't believe this. He said, yeah, you should, and, uh, well, I want to start reading the Bible, if there's stuff like that in it. Okay, so whether he did or not, I don't know. All I'm saying to you is that the credibility you have and the authority you have comes out of the humility and the vulnerability you show in, in submitting yourself to this wonderful process of reading through the Bible. So we're going to dive in uh, in Genesis, and I thought to make it as easy as possible, uh, I'm going to start with a story that's familiar to some of you if you've ever been to the theater, even if you haven't read the Bible yet. Uh, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. You know that? You saw that? All right. I'm not sure it has anything. In fact, I know it doesn't really have much to do with the Bible. I haven't seen the play, but it was a really uh, interesting take on Joseph's life. I want to start with the final, final moment when Joseph uh, confronts his brothers. Or not really confronts them, but comforts his brothers. And, and we're going to start, the Bible says, the first word of the Bible is Bereshit in Hebrew. It means in the beginning. Uh, the Greeks call that Genesis. In the beginning. We're going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Okay? So I'm going to start at the end uh, and then um, uh, we'll catch up with the beginning. Because his story captures so much. And so Joseph, the second and the youngest uh, son of Jacob, 12 boys, and this is his favorite son, hence the Technicolor dream coat. His father gives him this beautiful coat to wear. And Joseph is an immature kid, as all kids are his age, and so he's, he has these dreams. But he's very spiritually alive and, and aware, and he has these dreams where he believes God is showing him some things. And so he, 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 in that immature way, shares these wonderful dreams with his brothers. Unfortunately, they're, being older and wiser, have figured out, these dreams say that you are going to be lording it over us. That you're preferred over us, that God's granting you favor and is going to exalt you from the being the next to the youngest to really the leader of this family. And they didn't like that, and they were so annoyed with him being the favorite. And so this is Jacob's problem, right, not Joseph's. They arranged to, to do him in, and one of the brothers says, no, that wouldn't be a very good idea. Dad would take that pretty hard. So let's just do something much more civil. Let's sell him into slavery. Okay. <laughs> Great alternative. So they put him in a pit, some slave traders come by, they, they do the deal, and he's carried off into slavery. That's horrible. Horrible. No, it's actually pretty good, because Joseph gets a job with a guy named Potiphar, who is a person of authority in the Egyptian uh, government. Phenomenal. Except that, nah, it's not really that great. It's actually bad news, because he's got a wife who takes a liking to Joseph. Uh, well, that's good. No, it's bad because she's taking a liking to him that's inappropriate uh, given that she's a married woman and Joseph's saying, no, I, I, I will not do that. So good news, he stood up. Bad news because she went and told her husband that he had molested her. He has Joseph thrown into prison. Bad news. Yeah, except that he's with a couple guys and he has one of his dreams and God reveals some things. He shares it with the guys. Uh, makes a, a prophetic uh, prediction about what's going to happen to these guys, and they come true. And meanwhile, one of the guys who's now out and is in good form with um, the king uh, uh, remembers Joseph and tells him, uh, tells the, the, I guess Pharaoh that that uh, this is a really good guy. He can answer he can answer mysterious uh, questions and and figure out difficult things. And so he gets out of prison and he is brought before Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells him these dreams and he says, well, here's, here's the solution. So this puts him in an entirely new chapter of his life 
where he is finally raised up to be the number two person in Egypt. Now let that sink in. The number two person in Egypt in 2000 BC was probably uh, one of the most powerful men in the world. Why? Because Egypt was the breadbasket of the Mideast. There were roads that led from Egypt up to the north through all those countries you know about as modern countries, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Persia, then uh, Saudi Arabia to the east. Uh, the Europeans eventually figured out that Egypt was a breadbasket. It was like the California uh, of the region. It's just very powerful to, to manage that incredible economy. This is what Joseph did. Well, his father, meanwhile, uh, years earlier, when he was first informed that Joseph was gone, uh, they made it look like he was eaten by a wild animal. The tattered, blood-spattered coat is what all the father has left. And uh, he's, he's been grieving all these years. A famine hits uh, Palestine, which is very typical. That's why they had these roads that led from places like Palestine to Egypt. And so they went to Egypt to get food. And while they're there, Joseph sees them. And starts a conversation with them. And they don't recognize him because he looks completely, he's gone completely native. He's, he's very Egyptian now. He's grown up and he's, he's um, quizzing them about their family and about who, who's in your family and uh, tell me about your father. And, and meanwhile, after they tell him, he goes to a private place and weeps. And one thing leads to another. Uh, he arranges for them to come back to him. It's a very interesting story. I encourage you to read it. And then in chapter uh, 50, we see that he's got a meeting with his brothers, his father Jacob having now been relocated to Egypt. Uh, the relationship with the brothers has been restored, but Jacob now dies, and the brothers are nervous. Well, dad's gone, so there's no reason for Joseph not to, to by all rights, take his revenge on us. So that's where we are. When Joseph's brothers saw their, their father was dead, this is Genesis 50, 15 to 21, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They were thinking like they think. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Let me reread that. So they sent word to Joseph, lying. Your father left these instructions. Now, we don't know if he was lying. They were lying. But, but we don't know why Jacob wouldn't have taken care of this when he was alive. So whether they were lying or not, this is Joseph's response. He wept. When the message came to him, he wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said, fulfilling the dream he had as a young boy. Now it wasn't that they were his slaves in that initial dream. It was that he was exalted over them with, with apparently great responsibility. 
But now they're throwing themselves before him, probably guilty for what they'd done, and guilty for perhaps lying about what the father said, and hoping he'd be merciful. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Because his family was now 70 strong in this verdant, uh, beautiful place, Egypt. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Oh my gosh. What a powerful, powerful story. Just telling that story, uh, it can give you goosebumps, thinking what an incredible, magnanimous response from Joseph. And so this poignant passage is a culmination of everything proceeding in Genesis. This is how Genesis, that book that will take you two and a few minutes, hours to read, this is how it ends up. It starts with, in the beginning, and then, it's, then it ends with this. And it's completely continuous. When you read Genesis, you'll be tempted to think it's a series of disconnected events that just go from one to the other and starts in what seems to be a fanciful, fable, mythic kind of a thing about the creation of the earth. But it's true. Um, it then talks about why the world's in the state it's in. That's true. It gives you all kinds of people and situations that you can hardly pronounce and have never heard of. But everything you read in them is true. You say, I know people like that. I've done that. I've been there. I've seen that. And then it culminates in this. I've never met one person who's ever read the story and didn't say, I, I, who, do you, who do you identify with in the story? Uh, Joseph. I'm Joseph in the story. How about you? Nobody's ever said, well, you know, I'm Judah. I'm, you know, pick one of the brothers. No, they're all, they're all Joseph. So, so let me give you the, the um, now having, now, now, now having read that, let me go back and just give you the blow-by-blow quick survey through Genesis. First of all, we see in creation that God calls order and clarity into being. Let there be light. And, the, and every word of his command becomes what he commands. Every word he speaks has impact. And at the end of that creation, he says, it's good. It's very, very good. He takes nothing and turns it into something reflecting something so good um, that we say, and the writer of Genesis says, it's all made in the image of God. Everything, including people. So these people, Adam and Eve, their, their sole role and responsibility is faithfully managing God's creation as something wonderful. They're put in charge of creation. They're given authority. God meets them in, in their vulnerability. He's created them. He's blown his, his breath of life into them. He says, your job is to take this wonderful thing and have fun with it. Make it more wonderful. You ever wonder where you get your creative impulses? It's because you were created in the image of God. And he set you up to do creative things. That's why when you think about getting married, you don't think about getting divorced. It'll be different for me because I'm going to do some really creative and wonderful things. When you start that restaurant, you've always wanted to start, and everybody says, you know, 101% of restaurants fail. You go, not this one. i got a dream, and it's big. It's awesome. When you say, actually, you know, the restaurant thing didn't work for me, but I'm going to be a developer. That'll be really easy. Uh, yeah, and all I have to do is write about a bunch of personal guarantees. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. 
Why do we do this? Because we have this creative impulse to do things that are creative, to take things that we see that what could be, we want to make it what it, what it really is meant to be. This is what's going on here. Imagine that. But they choose disobedience via a mysterious evil presence personified in a serpent. It's easy to look at the, the style, the genre of literature that we're being offered up here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and dismiss it as if it's not true. It is true. It's absolutely true because God made it and said it. But they choose disobedience via this mysterious evil presence personified in a serpent, uh, serpent and they forfeit what they already have. The serpent lying, distorting the truth. And when he does say something true, it's to reinforce a lie. When he says, you know, you should eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, no, God said we shouldn't eat from that one. He told us to eat from the tree of life. That's what will sustain us. And one of them, Eve says, well, in fact, if we eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll die. Of course, God didn't say that. Now, Satan says something true to reinforce a lie. God, you, you will not die. Of course, they won't die. But they'll be forfeiting something that Satan can't give them in favor of something that Satan can take away from them. So this is, this is the heartbreak of what we read in Genesis 3. They chose disobedience and forfeited what they already had by embracing a lie about God. God wants us to live. They chose what ultimately you'd say is evil in, 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 in exchange for the life that they were given. Think about that word evil. It's just live spelled backwards. When we go for evil, we reverse what is supposed to be life. God wants us to live, and, 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 and at any point that we choose evil, what are we doing? We're trying to figure out things according to the, to the tree of the... The, of, the, of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, what we think in our own mind, we want to do what is right in our own eyes. This becomes the controlling narrative of our problem for the rest of the Bible. You see it over and over and over and over again. And so they're banished from the garden into disorder, chaos, confusion, immediately uh, murder and mayhem. Uh, murder, uh, Cain murdering Abel, a uh, mayhem, the, the gratuitous violence that leads to pain and heartache. The world is, uh, is hell-bent on practicing their knowledge of good and evil, and it's not good and usually evil. So generations of people increasingly hostile to God's purposes uh, are, are doing what they do, creating their own little mini uh, dynasties. And so you, the Babel story, the story of the Tower of Babel, let's build something that will get us to the heavens. We don't need God. And of course God sees that and disperses that. So people are dispersed around the world. That's what we find out in Genesis. He scatters the people, eventually bringing judgment via a cataclysmic flood. Now all this is at one point you can say, well this is fanciful stuff. It's true stuff written in a genre that allows us to get our heads and hearts around it. And so this flood results in a new start, but humans continue their sad legacy of alienation and shame. And we see Noah 
chosen with his family because they were righteous people, uh, compromising his righteousness. Uh, and, and one of his sons, Ham, uh, exposing his shame and mocking him to his brothers. Uh, and this creates a whole series of, of bad events as well. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Ham becomes the father of, of, of Canaan. And Canaan, because of Ham's sin, Canaan is cursed. Uh, and, and Canaan's family does horrible things. And so they inhabit Palestine. All this is happening up by the Tigris and Euphrates River. Uh, that's nowadays, I would call that Iraq, and, uh, on the way to Iran. And uh, they're now in the coastal place there. And the Canaanites um, murder children, constantly murder children. Uh, and so instead of the Canaanites, they defiled the earth. This is said by all the other tribes around them. They defiled the earth um, by doing what they did. And so Genesis 11 ends by introducing us to Abram and Sarai, a childless couple. So all these tribes, uh, Shem, Japheth, Ham, uh, these three sons become all these tribes that are dispersed around the world, repopulating the earth. This one particular guy, uh, Abram, uh, is married to Sarai. They, they share the same father, actually. Uh, different mothers, but the same father. So technically, they're brother and sister. Later, this is, this is um, um, uh, considered against the law of God. But this is where they live and how they live. And they've moved from that Fertile Crescent area by the Persian Gulf. What we call the Fertile Crescent starts, if you're looking at up here, it's Persian Gulf uh, and a place called Ur. They go around that crescent to a place called Haran, and eventually come down through Lebanon into Palestine and Egypt is way down here. So Abram uh, is a direct descendant of Shem. And so he's a Shemite. Uh, he's a Semite. And anybody who is, de- who is descended from Shem is a Semite. So there's lots of Semitic tribes. But along the way, uh, the great-grandson of Shem is a man named Eber who then is the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Abraham, Abram who became Abraham. Eber, uh, in that line, if you're related to him, you're of Eber, which in Hebrew would be your Eberu, your Hebrew. So Shem is a Semite, Eber is a Hebrew. So now we have Abraham who is a Semitic Hebrew. And he's called by God to come into this land of promise, controlled by people who are violent and vile people the Canaanites. And so they do that, and in Genesis 12 to 50 then, we see the rest of Genesis. So for the first 11 chapters give you this ramp up. This covenant then is established between God and Abraham. Will you trust me? I want to to bless all nations and all families on earth through you. And Abraham trusts him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this launches us into now 12 to 50. So if you think of Genesis, 1 to 11 is one chunk with subparts. Now 12 to 50 uh, is the rest. As this individual becomes a family, as couple becomes a family, becomes the start of what ultimately is a nation. So it's God's intent that all families and nations be blessed through Abram and Sarai as they trust in God, and they, uh, they do, and eventually they become Abraham and Sarah. But like Adam and Eve, uh, they do what's right in their own eyes. And so Abram uh, goes down into the Canaanite area and he checks it out, he goes, well, that's scary. Um, he buys some property. He's, he's trying to make his way. He's, he's fudging the truth as he goes. 
and another famine, right? Uh, earlier than the one that affected Joseph's family. So they go where? Down to Egypt. And on the way back to Egypt, he and his nephew Lot, because when Abram came down, he brought a massive retinue of people with him. They divide where they're going to live. And so you get these stories about Sodom and Gomorrah and these kings that kidnap Lot. And it, it goes on and on and on, right? But eventually, uh, Abram does have a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And you see, Abraham's deceit is carried forward through the family line to the point that Jacob's name is really uh, means ripoff, deceiver. After wrestling with uh, an angel of God, his name is changed to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel. It's, it's actually Jacob's new name. And so meanwhile, because Abram is doing what's right in his own eyes, in a sense practicing the fruit of good and evil, he doesn't trust God in his promises, and he has a son, Ishmael. Jacob rips off his brother Esau, and that becomes a, another sub-tribe. Lot ends up having an incestuous relationship with his daughters, who become two more tribes that for the rest of, of history harass uh, the Israelites. So you see all these consequences constantly coming out of these, of these responses to doing what's right in one's own eyes. Can you relate to this at all? Do you know anybody who's, who's suffered this? Doing what's right in their own eyes? I, I'll be the arbiter of what's good and evil. I, I, you know, I, now, now bear with me here. But the Canaanites were known for, for killing children for what they considered really good reasons. And we say that is reprehensible. Uh, a coastal people living in a beautiful place, starting with the names, the letter C, killing children. California announces, if you want to do abortion, send all your folks here. We'll take care of that for you. No matter what you think about abortion, nobody I know has ever had the, the nerve to look at a baby being aborted who wasn't the person doing the abortion. Nobody I know has ever, ever said, I can't wait to watch an abortion. And that's just not a judgment on your political point of view whether that should be allowed or not. I'm saying this notion uh, that we do what's right in our own eyes leads to unintended consequences that are horrific. And whether it's an issue like abortion or what, what's mine is mine, everybody else has to figure out what, what they're going to do. Hmm, that's not exactly how we were created to be. Well, I've got this, and, and, and you know, et cetera. We make all these, all these rationalizations. C.S. Lewis does a brilliant job in, in mere Christianity of, of dissecting this. The propensity of human beings to rationalize good and evil according to their own terms versus the life that God calls us to. If you have a choice between good and evil, start with where is the source of life and what would it look like for me to pursue that? And it will lead you to the Lord. And then, of course, what will you have? you'll have knowledge of good and evil, but from a context that gives you a point of reference that just isn't your limited view and understanding of reality. And so Abraham's deceit is reflected in his sons and their sons until Joseph, and that's where we started. And we see in Joseph a foreshadowing of what God promises to rescue and restore his creation. We saw this promise uh, right at the point of disobedience in the garden, God confronts the serpent and he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, this has been understood uh, for the last several thousand years 
as God's prophetic way of saying, I will make this right. What you intended for evil, I will use for good. And this idea of a heel crushing the head of the serpent, but the, but the heel being wounded by the serpent, uh, uh, we see fulfilled in Christ. So this is where we get this notion that there is a Savior promised by God. It starts in Genesis 3.15. And then when we get to this story about Joseph, well, obviously we realize, my gosh, this is like a signpost or a foreshadowing of the very thing that Jesus fulfills. That here's Joseph with massive power and integrity who has practiced humility and vulnerability and now has credibility and authority. And by the brother's own words, he has the right to hold them accountable for what they've done. And what does he do? In this case, he says, I don't pretend to be God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And so generation to generation, God advances his commitment to restore creation. He's doing it right now. And we see the big aha moment is when he fulfills Genesis 3.15 in Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, John, writes in his first letter, 1 John 3.8, he says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So it is through Christ, God in the flesh, that he restores his own creation. Okay, then why are we still in a world where babies can be murdered, women can be trafficked, people can take advantage of one another, even if they have a great contract and and the law is on their side? It does not matter, right? People do things uh, that are illegal, unjust, immoral, and rationalize it. Why is that still happening? Because there's a new creation in the making and it isn't all done yet. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But what's different is that we're in the, on the other side of the cross. And so like Abram and Sarah, we're blessed to be a blessing. But we have it from the context of the fulfillment of God's promise. We really don't have any excuses to fudge the facts and to live deceitfully because we know that God has triumphed over evil. We know that death no longer holds anything over on us because though we will die, yet shall we live. We know that we have the power to say no to Satan's schemes. We have the Word of God to, to, to guide us and the Holy Spirit to empower us. And so we have no excuse to be cynical or complacent. Oh, that's the way the world is. The way the world is. I'm just going to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. We're not called to be cynical or complacent. We're called to be engaged because now we get to walk with Jesus and say, Lord, what's going on here? Not that I'm the arbiter and the judge. I'm not God. But what can I do to serve your purposes, Lord, in this situation? And so what we do now is to respond with compassion and conviction. Compassion and conviction. This is what Joseph embodied. Tomorrow we'll celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday. If you were asked to summarize his life and ministry, would you say it was cynical and complacent? 
what would you say? It was filled and fueled with compassion and conviction. And of course, you'd say, well, yeah, obviously, compassion and, and conviction. Uh, another flawed human being, but now belonging to Christ and being transformed by Him and taking on um, from Him this compassionate commitment to recognize that I have been blessed to be a blessing and it might cost me my very life, but I'm willing to lay it down because the one whom I serve laid his life down for me. So this is what we celebrate. We don't, we don't celebrate a political movement, though it had political implications. We celebrate a spiritual movement. A, move of re, a movement of redemption and renewal. Are you part of a redemption and renewal movement? Do you see yourself in the heart and the momentum of a, of a spiritually renewing and redemptive movement? I hope you do because you are. If you are in Christ, you are part of that movement. Yeah, but I'm just a flawed human being. That's not an excuse anymore. Martin Luther King could have said, I'm a flawed human being. It'll be held against me. I'm sorry, that's not an excuse. If you're called to respond to the, to the Lord, then you say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to learn to walk with you. But I'm not going to use anything as an excuse not to be obedient to you and respond to you. Every one of us in this room, if we were honest, we'd say, I feel like I've sort of failed at what I was called to do. Wouldn't you say that? In some, in some days you go, ah, oh, if I could have done this, I could have done that, I should have, would have, could have. But then what you say is, but you know what? God hasn't called me to look at my failure. He's called me to reflect on what it means that he's faithful to me and I can learn to be faithful to him. So we don't then take the binary of everything is a fail because life isn't perfect. We say, no, I'm choosing this path called faithfulness because I'm in relationship with God. He is perfect, I'm not. And rather than become cynical and complacent, because that's where you go when you say, I guess I failed. It's a cheap excuse to say, I'm therefore no longer obligated or responsible to be committed. Sorry, it's not that easy. A friend of mine had gone through a very, very, he had a very high profile, internationally visible job. Uh, And he was at the top of his career in the most successful company uh, in his field, in the world. And he, and he he made some bad decisions, and none of them were, you know, outrageous. It was just enough that it was wrong what he did, bad judgment, and he lost all that. And for for months, for about two years after we went through this, he, every time I'd I'd hear him talk about something, he'd say, "Yeah, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, I really can't talk much about that because I don't have any credibility." Finally, I just felt like I needed to call him, and I'd, I'd been in conversation with him all through this whole whole thing. I said, "Hey, you know what? Um, you're forgiven, right? Yeah." And you've been reconciled, right? Yeah. So, so let go of the narrative that says, I really don't have the authority or the responsibility to weigh in on anything. And I said it gently, and I said it because we already had some context. I said, you know, live like you are. That is, you're forgiven and reconciled to God. And you're reconciled to the people you've hurt. And yes, it's embarrassing to have fallen from such a high place, but guess where you fell? You fell into the arms of God. And He has a job for you to do. And you have every right to hold your head high. I hope you know that about you. You have a right to hold your head high, not because you're so awesome, because you know I've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know what's up. But rather, no, 
You've turned your back on that and you're feeding on the tree of life. And therefore, your future is bright. Your, your, your future is secure. Your present is clear because you've been called to be compassionate and committed to follow the one who makes that possible, your Lord and Savior. So in Christ, you are God's person for blessing your family, his church, his world. And so that's why I, 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 I'll use an old-fashioned word. I abjure you. I exhort you. I, I encourage you. I challenge you. Uh, I invite you to pick up Genesis and read it through. In the two hours it takes to read it, if you want to spread that over the next week, fine. If you want to read it all today, go for it. And read it three times then. Why? Because it's real, it's revealing, and it's still relevant. You'll read your own story in Genesis. And this is what you're going to find as we read through every book of the Bible. You're reading your own story. You read it honestly in the context of it, if, if it happening in its own setting. You're not reading into it. You're reading it as it is. But as you read out of it what's there, you realize it's reading into you your story. Powerful, powerful, powerful. So uh, I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to have another song by the band. Uh, it's a time of offering, not to bring money. Uh, we, we, we ask you to, to support the church financially, but this time is not that kind of offering. This time of offering, uh, give your, if, you want to, if you brought an offering, put it in the, in the box as you go out, write us a check, send us stocks. I don't care what you do. Uh, we need your support. But this kind of offering is you offering you to God. Where are you? Are you holding me at arm's length saying, yeah, I don't know if I'm sure about you yet? Get over that and say, Lord, I'm not sure if you're sure about me. But I'll trust that you've invited me to come into a relationship with you. Maybe you've, you've done some things that you're so embarrassed about, you say, I don't really deserve to be in a relationship with God anymore. Sorry, that doesn't work. That's Satan's lies to you. If Satan says to you in your conscience, well, you know, you're a sinner. And you continue to sin. You say, true. But guess what? I have a Savior. That's what matters. So if you've been far from God, come back to Him. If you're walking strong with Him, Thank God for that. And then figure out, Lord, what is it that you want me to do with this incredible confidence and momentum that you've given me, this, this sense of being alive in you? How can I encourage my brothers and sisters? And then uh, come out to the patio, have some coffee, have some, some, something to eat. And if you don't have one with you already, stop by the, the table and for five bucks you can pick up this journal, a beautiful journal. It costs us ten. And um, we're going to sell it for five because we want to motivate you to, to, to uh, read it, use it, to write in it. As you read through the Bible, pick up one of these. This is free, this thing in here. This five. Two for 20, okay? You can get two of these for 20 bucks and uh, come back at 11 and for 45 minutes we're going to reflect on some things that will help you understand the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, and all the way through the Bible. So Lord Jesus, that's our prayer is that we would have hearts and minds open to you hands open to you, that we would be so convinced that you love us and accept us, that we would come into your presence with great gratitude of heart, clarity of mind. You're calling our order, a disorder, into order under you. You're, 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 you're healing our confusion by giving us clarity about who you are and who we are. You're empowering us. You're strengthening our weak arms and legs, our distracted minds, uh, corrupted souls. Lord, you're making us new creations in Christ. We have nothing to apologize for. We have everything to confess and receive your grace 
because you have made it possible for us to do that. So we thank you and praise you in your holy name and offer ourselves to you in this time of worship. Amen.
He is amazing. He is amazing. He invites you to come into his presence and to walk with him in newness and fullness of life, starting today, continuing today. Uh, if we can pray for you about anything that concerns you or anybody close to you or anything that is on your heart, go right out around the corner into the prayer garden. There'll be somebody who'll, have, who'll be there to pray with you. And you don't have to tell them what you want. If you want to tell them what you want prayer for, great. But if you just want to say, just pray for me, they will. And it'll be, it won't be awkward or weird. It'll just be a gift. Uh, go out and have something to eat and drink. At about 5 to 11, you'll hear music. Uh, come on in. And uh, we'll, we'll get going on our what we call conversations. And it's really a fun thing. So uh, don't be intimidated. Uh, just come in and uh, sit down. And you'll see these circles of chairs sit down. And we're going to have a great, great time together for 45 minutes. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for being in worship with us today.